Hello, this is Courtney from Wonder in English. The Wonder in English community provides free online English lessons for students with an intermediate to advanced level of English. For the full version of this lesson, don't forget to check out wonderinenglish.com, W-O-N-D-E-R in English.com. So today's podcast is going to be a little bit different than usual. Instead of explaining what certain vocabulary words mean, I've actually just included the interview here with my friend Mary Rose. In this interview, we talk about prison reform and what it's like to be in jail or be in prison in the United States. It's a pretty intense episode. She also uses some really difficult vocabulary, which I hope you guys will still understand. So what I've included instead of defining that vocabulary is I've created a PDF that you guys can download. The link will be available in the description of the podcast episode. It will also be available at wonderinenglish.com and the episode with a transcript and everything. So this PDF will include two days worth of exercises and the transcript. So in the first day, I have you guys pick out phrasal verbs. So I've chosen a few from this text and I've written them out and I have you guys listen out for them and check next to them when you hear them. Then later on, I have you guys put the correct preposition with the phrasal verb and then I give you an example of it and then I have you guys write your own sentence with the phrasal verb. So in case you don't know, a phrasal verb is a verb plus typically a preposition. So for example, the very first one I used was obsessed with. The second one I use is forced into. So if you just say you're obsessed or if you just say something was forced, it has a different meaning than if you add that extra preposition on. So this can be really challenging for people who are learning a second language. And that is why I've included it in this episode. I'm also going to make a YouTube video about this very topic about phrasal verbs. There was a recent research study done that showed the top 100 phrasal verbs, and it actually accounts for 50% of all phrasal verbs used by native speakers. So if you can get those top 100 down, then really you'll account for the 50% of phrasal verb usage throughout the day. So that video is going to be on the YouTube channel, which is Wonder in English, Courtney. If you just search for that, you'll find it. Also included in the PDF on the second day is grammar. So I take sentences that my friend says and I explain a little bit about what she means and I give further examples. I'm just trying to show you common sentence structure rather than grammar per se. Like I'm not going into, okay, this is this tense or this is that tense because at this level it's advanced already. I'm going into the sentence structure, which is quite challenging. So I hope that this will be helpful for you guys. It took me a very long time to make and I'm so happy to offer it to you guys. So what I encourage you to do is listen to the podcast one day and listen out for the phrasal verbs and do the exercises. And then on another day, listen to it again, maybe a few days later, and take a look at the grammar and do those exercises. 
Also, feel free to define all the vocabulary that you guys don't understand. So you can print out a copy of this, underline or highlight the vocabulary you don't understand and define it for yourself. Actually going through and doing the work of looking it up and writing it out and defining it, it might seem very tedious and I, I know that it is, but actually taking all of that action will help you remember the, that vocabulary in the future. So I really hope that you guys enjoy this episode. I hope you understand what we say. I know it's probably going to be one of the more challenging episodes that you guys listen to. So I just want to wish you the best of luck. And again, if you have any questions, you guys can contact me at wonderinenglish.com. Hello, Mary Rose. Welcome. Hi. I'm so happy to have you here. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. Cool. So Mary Rose is a wonderful and amazing woman. She's one of my all-time best friends and she's extremely smart. So I'm hoping she will share some of her words with us today because she's basically a walking dictionary. And she's also a lawyer and an activist and someone who really, really cares about people who have been given a less fortunate hand in this world. So welcome, Mary Rose. Thank you so much for being here. And will you tell us a little bit about yourself and why you chose the profession that you chose to be a lawyer right now and yeah, how you ended up where you are? Okay, let's see. How did I end up where I am? Well, my mother was a lawyer, <laughs> so it seemed... So the apple uh, doesn't fall far from the tree. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. <laughs> Good idiom. <laughs> and uh, so <clears throat> I, my skill set lies in, 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 in what it takes to be an attorney. I don't have other skills, so it seemed like the only logical thing to do. <laughs> what do you mean you don't have other skills? Well, I'm terrible at math and science and okay. what else is there? Everything else. Yeah. So my, yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see. And then how did I end up? So I always wanted to become an attorney, which is a cliche, but that's, it's true. And when I was applying to law schools, I was looking for um, the ones that were geared towards social justice. And I found this school, um, which is part of the, um, it's a Jesuit school, which is a sect of Catholicism. And they consider themselves like the teaching sect of Catholicism. And they um, are social justice activists. And so I went there. And I had a lot of really great mentors, professors. Mm. Um, and and my, this was high school? No, this is when I was applying to law school. When and when I went to law school, yeah. Okay. And um, when I was in law school, I um, somehow really became aware of the prison industrial complex, mm-hmm. and um, which was something I didn't know anything about. And then I became quite obsessed with it and did a lot of research, wrote a paper on it. And that's sort of how I got involved in prison reform. Mm -hmm. And now that you're so aware of it, and when you talk to people in the public and your friends, how much knowledge do you think the public has about what's really going on in the U.S. prisons? Very little. Very little. Yeah. 
So I would love for you to tell us the truth about what's going on so our listeners can not only learn English, but can also learn about what's happening in the United States behind closed doors. Because I think sometimes um, a lot of people paint America like the land of the free, but actually the prison system is quite the opposite. So mm -hmm. will you tell us a little bit about how that works? Yeah, I can try and distill it. It's it's a pretty it's a pretty complex system, but um, um, you can't talk about the prison system in America without talking about the institution of slavery. Um, in you know, as I'm sure your listeners know, we had slavery, institutionalized slavery in the United States for hundreds of years, um, and when we passed the Thirteenth um, Amendment of our U.S. Constitution. Um, that was the amendment that um, outlawed institutionalized slavery. However, it leaves, it has sort of, it has a clause in the sentence, because um, it is just, I believe it's just one sentence long, that says that, um, basically it says no one can be sentenced, or no one can, no one can um, be forced to, um, into servitude involuntary, involuntarily, unless um, if it's for punishment for a crime. Okay. And the reason why they crafted it like that was to reserve a workforce because they were terrified that they wouldn't have, you know, they could no longer, it was illegal to enslave people. And they thought, well, how are we going to get this work done? You know, who's going to build our infrastructure? Who's going to pick mm -hmm. our crops? And so when they, when they passed the 13th Amendment, they made it so that you could still sentence someone to involuntary servitude if they create if they committed a crime. Mm -hmm. So what they so what they then did was <laughs> basically they came up with it. Um, they're now referred to as the Black Codes. So if you think about it, after the enslaved people were emancipated, um, many many people chose to stay on where they were when they were enslaved because they had nowhere else to go. They didn't have any money. Yeah, yeah of course. They didn't. And but uh, but some people left. Um, many many hundreds of thousands of formerly enslaved people died from disease or hunger. You know, starvation. That's um, interesting. That's not something that we talk about. Is what happened after the emancipation? Okay. Then where do they go? Then what do they do? They had they don't have money. They don't have a home. They don't have family there so then exactly they're just that's actually something that we've never talked about in 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 u.s history classes for kids they say and then the emancipation proclamation was um was was passed and thank you abraham lincoln and, and that's all after. happily ever after exactly and they gloss over the jim crow era and they and they don't talk about institutionalized racism today yeah everything's fine now according to them Wow, that's so enlightening. I didn't think about that. And it's it's crazy when there's so much happening um, now with racism and you think back and you realize, wow, I don't know a lot about how this came to be, how we are, where we are today. And that's intentional. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, tell us a little bit more about that, like what you were saying. So, so they're now referred to um, the, the the grouping the group of laws are now referred to um, as the black codes, mm -hmm. and so basically to give an example, it would it, it they would they pass a lot of laws to criminalize things 
that black people were probably doing after they were emancipated. In other words, they criminalize vagrancy, which um, so if you are emancipated, you have nowhere to go. You're probably on the streets. They then criminalize that. So they criminalize vagrancy. Right. And so that they could incarcerate people and then, and then put them to work. Is that still illegal now? Uh, vagrancy? I mean, yeah, but you can't. I don't think you can. I mean, I don't know. I think it would vary by state. Okay. Yeah, I mean, vagr- you can't. That's why homeless people are often arrested. Sometimes it could just be um, under vagrancy laws. Okay. Um, but that's just, you know, a consequence of their, of their very existence is criminalized. That's crazy. And it was all, you know, make no mistake, it's it's all intentional. Yeah. They did that on purpose to make sure that they could, like I said, reserve this this workforce. Yeah. And so basically this discrete loophole. Ex- exactly, exactly a discrete loophole, thereby re enslaving all these folks who had just been so called emancipated. Yeah. Because it's no longer slavery because they did something wrong. And then they put it under a different guise. She's using air quotes. You yes, can't say. <laughs> air quotes. <laughs> so they're putting it under a new guise that makes the public accept basically a modern en- enslavement. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yep. Because we think uh, in America, you know, we, sub- we subscribe to the um, retributist philosophy. What's that? A uh, meaning that... Um, like just what you were alluding to, if I do something wrong, if 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 I Mary Rose do something wrong, if mm. I if I if I rob you, mm-hmm. I deserve to be punished, and not only do I deserve to be punished, I deserve to be punished severely, mm-hmm. because that's a property crime in the United States. We do not like property crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so retribution—that's where that's coming from, right? And okay. when when prisons, I mean. Right, I mean, we're a Judeo-Christian society, so it ought to be about forgiveness and rehabilitation. Yeah, but it's about it's about retribution. It's about oppression. Yeah, yeah. And so, how is this playing out in our modern prison prison systems now? What are you seeing? Because you're going in there and you're actually speaking with people who have obviously experienced the oppression and are inside the prison systems who are put into solitary confinement, for example, mm-hmm. and who are really experiencing the the worst of um, of the U.S. government and of, of the system. So mm-hmm. what has that been like for you on a personal level and also for them? And just can you tell us a little bit about that situation? Mm-hmm. So on a personal level, it's been very hard because basically what I what I what I've done is is gone into these into these prisons and 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 meet with clients or potential clients. And sometimes these people haven't seen another human being for weeks or months. Because they will, if you are in a form of solitary confinement, they'll feed you through a flap. And if you have a shower in your cell, you won't see anybody. Through a flap. Like through a slit in the door. Yeah. So, I feel like that is extremely dehumanizing. And 
I think it would be really difficult to keep touch with reality. So did you ever witness somebody before they went in and then after that amount of time? Or did you, were you able to see the change and what did you see? Yes, I did with somebody. Uh, I had a client who we had, you know, I work at a nonprofit, so we have a lot of clients. And I had one with whom I, I, I became close. I, we had several phone calls. Um, and the first time I met with him, he had only been in, in he had been incarcerated for several years. But he, a young man, a very bright man. How old? Thirty. Okay. He, um. He when I first met with him the first time, he had only been in solitary confinement for a few weeks, and then only a few weeks. Only a few weeks, right? Exactly. <laughs> only. And then for six months, I only had phone conversations with him. Okay. And then I had another visit with him six months from the first visit. Yeah. And he had visibly deteriorated both. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a psychiatrist. But from a lay person's perspective, he had visibly deteriorated both physically and mentally. He was a, when I first saw him, he was a strong, muscular, handsome young man. He had lost, he told me, and I, he had lost about 20 pounds. Wow. He was shaking and his affect had 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 just it was it was markedly different from the person that I had met previously the, in the previous six months. Yeah. So basically, they torture the life out of you for minor for minor infractions. Yes, they torture you for minor infractions. And what put him there? We'll put him first in prison, and then what put him into solitary confinement, if you know? So I try not to look at what put them in prison, because I'm not their criminal defense attorney. Okay. And I, I'm, I get concerned that if they did something that is particularly heinous, that it might prejudice me against them. Okay. So I yeah. try not, if I can avoid it, I'll try not to look at what they're in there for. That's interesting. This particular person, I know he was in there for armed robbery. With no one injured. And the reason... I don't know if I can talk about it. I don't know if I can talk about it. Like legally? No, I think I can talk about it legally because I'm not using any names or any any kind of descriptions. Um... Something very bad happened to him. The guards did something bad to him. And he reported it. And as they found out that he reported it, and as retribution, they put him in solitary confinement. Whoa. Yeah. That's terrible. Yeah. That's so sad. So this is the kind of thing that you have to deal with on a pretty regular basis. Um, people who've been through horrible tragedies that have been oppressed and then are later blamed for what they were victims of. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's a running theme um, in the United States, but not just here. I mean, in the world, I think that this is just so prevalent that 
people just blame the victims. And Mm -hmm. I think that the more we talk about it, the more aware people will become and hopefully the less it will happen. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I think that's a systemic issue and not just here, but everywhere in the world. Yeah, across the world. Yeah, I mean, particularly in the United States, the narrative, we have a, we have a narrative against impoverished people and against oppressed, oppressed people. So, and like you said, they're vilified. Mm. And, you know, if you think about, you know, maybe you guys have heard like, oh, in the United States, poor people are on the welfare system. And, and they're, they're on the welfare system because they're lazy and they are criminals and they just don't want to work hard. One in point of fact, you know, that's, that's, that, 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 that's, a, that's a very compelling, it's a very shiny myth. Mm. It's something that's easy to buy into and believe because it's less painful than the truth. Yeah. The truth is that if you're a black or brown person, a low-income black or brown person in the United States of America, a queer person, <laughs> you've been, you I, I have been oppressed for so many so many so many decades and you are currently the victims of multiple you know the yeah. of multiple kinds of oppression you know um institutionalized or or otherwise that it's no surprise that if you're growing up in poverty and you get treated like shit that why wouldn't you become a drug dealer mm-hmm. to get by yeah to have to have a life that maybe is a little bit meaningful and honestly, even if there was no crime involved in this conversation right now, even if it wasn't um, that that people, some people have resulted to, just the the sheer fact that I think marginalized people are blamed for not achieving the same things that privileged people have. Right. And, you know, we're saying, well we like people are saying um basically why it's their fault you know mm-hmm. it's their fault that they don't have money it's their fault that they're taking advantage in air quotes of the welfare system but in reality you know if you start a race centuries behind someone how can you possibly catch up like it just i mean sure there are a few outliers but it just doesn't, it's just, it's just not been fair from the beginning. And because it's been a long amount of time relatively since open slavery, I think people have, people who didn't experience it have forgotten. And they just think, well, why can't you get your shit together? And why can't you make a life for yourself? And why are you resulting to these, these things? When actuality, they didn't stand a chance from the beginning. Um, I don't know. So, yeah. So, besides crime, I mean, even just succeeding in life and in small ways is extremely difficult because they have to be ten times better than someone else who's who's white or who is male. Even I don't know. Like mm-hmm. there's, yeah. So. 
Is there anything else you want to say about that part before I move on to the positive side? (laughs) I don't think so. I think we've covered the negative stuff. (laughs) So as someone who's deeply entrenched in the issues surrounding um, oppression and, and, and actually making it their life's work to help these people, from your point of view, what action steps can we take as everyday people to make the world a little bit easier and a little bit more fair and a little bit of a better place to live for everyone? Hmm. As everyday people. Um, I think a lot of introspection. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're if you're a white person, if you're a heterosexual person, if you're an able-bodied person, if you're a man, really checking in with yourself and where you're at. I don't want to use the term. I mean, the term like check your privilege. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't want to. It's been used so much. It's been used so much. It's it's trite now. Yeah. But it's true. I mean, it's been used a lot because, because there's... It's, true. it's a valid point. I think it's an I think it's twofold, you know, A to recognize all the all the benefits you've had and then B to maybe look inward and and identify the prejudices that you hold dear maybe if you don't even know you do, and to try to eradicate that within yourself. Mm-hmm. And speaking as a white person, uh, and, and, and folks, you know, they're, they're, people differ on this, but for me as a white person, I feel like it's my job to try mm-hmm. to assist my fellow white folks along the way, uh, out of the paradigm in which they're living, in and and towards and towards reality towards truth yeah to face to face what it is we're really dealing with now which is which is rampant <laughs> misogyny <laughs> transphobia homophobia racism really we're living in really dangerous times really dangerous times I mean, people have been killed because of the rhetoric that Donald Trump and his acolytes spew. Mm-hmm. And to be aware of that is is the first step. Mm-hmm. And then to join the fight is the second step. Mm-hmm. Even if you can't join the fight all the way, show up, you know? Yeah. Go to a couple of protests. Talk to, like I said, your fellow white folks about these things. Trying to make them confront their own prejudices. Mm -hmm. Maybe it won't do anything, but maybe it will. That's wonderful. Yeah, I think even facing the issues within side of yourself is quite difficult because there is a lot of shame and a lot of guilt associated with that. So it's much easier on the psyche to just say, well... It's their fault. Well, mm-hmm. um, you know, this isn't happening anymore. And it's just not true. And I think, you know, the harder it is to face something, the more it needs to be faced and the more it needs to be talked about. And absolutely, I think it's amazing to take that second step. And But first, you have to take the first. So um, 
I think it's really nice that you pointed out to go within yourself and really ask yourself if you do have any prejudices because I think that if you're human you have them and whether or not you act on it is a different story but I think it's really important to deconstruct what society has installed within you because I'm not even saying that if you're a good person like it's honestly it's not your fault some of the things that you think you know I even think some of these things that are against women and against myself mm-hmm. it's just because society, internalized misogyny yeah, yeah mm-hmm. and society has fed that to you from a very young age so I'm not saying that you shouldn't take ownership of it and get rid of it but I'm saying that you know, it's important to face that and realize that those aren't your own thoughts. You've just heard them so much that now you've internalized it and now you believe it. Absolutely. And then that becomes a dangerous thing when you don't shine a light on that and say, wait, that wasn't my thought to begin with. That's coming from some, some bigger voice that the man yeah i didn't want to say it but that's what i was thinking exactly machine yeah i always just go back to you know have compassion for yourself have compassion Mm -hmm. for others Mm -hmm. and tap and tap into that and really when you're confronted with an idea you know say Say you have a problem with immigrants coming into your country and you think, you know, I just wish they would go away because they're taking our jobs and I just, they don't want to learn our language and, and, I, and, and they don't practice our religion and I, I just, I don't want them here. I feel uncomfortable to really dig in that and sit in that and think about why. And I think, you know, connecting not othering the, the, the person, the, mm. not othering immigrants, you know, the, using this example. and uh, Can you explain? Because I think our ESL speakers won't know what othering means. Uh-huh. Mm. So can you explain a little bit to the listener what that means? What does othering mean? <sighs> Participating... In rhetoric that dehumanizes your fellow human being. Hmm. That doesn't make it very clear. So in layman's terms, (laughs) everyday people terms for our ESL speakers, I think othering would be, um, yeah, making someone feel different from you so they're the other they're not like me they're not human like me um dehumanizing in the way that you take away um like their their humanity and their rights as a human so when you other someone you know they don't deserve the same things you deserve because they're not actually human so you take all the emotion out of what it means to have compassion for a fellow being, for mm-hmm. a fellow living being. You other them and you make it other than yourself. You dissociate from them. Mm-hmm. Liken them to animals often. Yeah. Yeah. 
And yeah, so that's what othering means. So, so I don't know if you can remember your train of thought. <laughs> My example of immigrants and uh, mm. no, I, I guess I don't remember. Yeah, just to do not other. I think when you're feeling a certain type of way about somebody, you know, I mean, to meet someone who is that thing that you're afraid of. Mm. Of course, it's not their job to correct you and, and they're not a token, but... To use my to use an example, I, I use I use the example of, of immigrant folks because I used to be prejudiced against immigrants. Oh, really? And I had those feelings that they shouldn't come to our country, and so I made myself um, practice immigration law in law school, and I met all of those people, and I I realized how wrong I was and what I was participating in was othering, and I was thinking of them as like this giant group, this giant, to use Trump's words, caravan of migrants as this entity, this evil entity, rather than my fellow humans who are going through strife and need help and are wonderful, wonderful people. Yeah. Yeah. I think everything at the end of the day and at the end of this conversation really boils down to the idea of having compassion. Mm -hmm. And recognizing the humanness in all of us and the empathy, which is not easy to have when a situation is so foreign from something you ever have or ever will experience. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to have empathy. But just imagining for one moment in your life what it would be like if you were someone that was had ancestors that were enslaved that have been growing up in absolute poverty, that are surrounded by drugs, that are put in a prison system and then extremely hurt by the prison system, put in solitary confinement. Like imagine what that would be like and then you can't you can't help but have compassion. So I guess that's the takeaway is to... I think that's a good thing to end on. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you so much, Mary. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for having me. I love you dearly. I and love you too. I will hopefully be doing another interview with you. Thank you again so much, guys, for tuning into that episode. Don't forget to download the PDF with all of the worksheet information and exercises over on wonderandenglish.com or you can find the link in the episode description of the podcast. Have a really beautiful day. Bye.